Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, that's just one example. But there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, And if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, Thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. Uh, we don't do episodes anymore, right? No, we're in season two. That's true. We're in season two, first episode. I am your co-host, Joshua, and I'm joined, as always, by Kevin, your co-host. And we are interviewing tonight and chatting with A.C. Thompson, who is a investigative journalist for ProPublica, as well as a commentator slash producer slash on-air personality for Frontline Documentaries. And also has a long history in the punk community, um, which is what we like to talk about here. Um, and AC and I, I think, met uh, maybe in like 1992 or 93. Uh, he was out on the road with a one of what I consider one of the best live bands ever, in my opinion, called The Veil. And um, so we can start with that. Maybe give us a little background, AC, on where you grew up and um, how you got involved in punk. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., in Virginia. And I, like a lot of kids in the 80s, first gravitated towards skateboarding when I was in about sixth grade. And then when I was in maybe seventh grade, I heard Minor Threat and Agent Orange and the Circle Jerks on cassette tape. And it blew my mind. I was like, what is this? And at first it didn't sound like music to me. It just sounded like static and screaming. And then three weeks later, I thought it was the best stuff ever. That's so interesting um, to me. Like the first time I heard Operation Ivy, I hated them. And I thought they just sounded like screaming to me. And then, yeah, same thing. But later they're the most palatable thing I can imagine. It's very funny. Yeah, it was, it was remarkable how that change happened. And, you know, um, at that time in, in my particular suburb, there were a lot of punk rockers and they were putting on shows actually like within a mile of my house. So by the time I was in, I think seventh grade, like 1985, 1986, I was going to, to punk shows. And then shortly after that, going to shows in DC and Baltimore and all up and down the East coast. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's funny because I, uh, 
similarly, like I had a friend in junior high, which is I guess called middle school now. For no, me. middle school is sixth, seventh. Uh, sorry, seventh, eighth, ninth, and junior high is just seventh and eighth, is my understanding. It's super important that I bring this it's up important. right now. But I, uh, I had a friend whose brother was like super into the Dead Kennedys and uh, Circle Jerks as well. He had a copy of The Decline of Western Civilization, which we uh-huh. barely wore the grooves out on. I mean, we basically like just killed that record. And um, I just, I, at first, I thought it was total noise. I was like, what is this? And what are these guys wearing? You know, I thought it was like a costume. And, uh, <laughs> but within, within a couple months, it was, it was on, man. I just, uh, completely relate to that. And, you know, I don't know what it was like for you. And we often ask this, but did you feel like you had kind of found your people at that point? Yeah. You know, I mean, look, I was living in the, in the DC suburbs. So basically, you know, everybody's parents worked for the government or the military. Everybody was, there's a deep culture of conformity in that area that I think is deeper than you find in other places. The long shadow of government sort of casts this um, sort of need to conform over everybody. Sure. And, you know, there was an intense fixation on material accumulation in that community, you know, what you owned, what you wore, what you looked like. And, uh, yeah, I never really fit in with any of that stuff. And at that time, I couldn't really figure it out. I didn't really... Uh, feel at home anywhere. I felt good on my skateboard and I was happy to go skating, but I didn't feel comfortable amongst my peers, but the punks and the skaters I did feel comfortable with and they didn't care what you looked like and they didn't care, um, you know, what you wore and they didn't care how much money you had. And and so that was the place for me. And I, I would say also, you know, at that time for me and particularly where I was, and it might've been the same in the Bay area is like, the thrash metal thing started happening as well. And so there were all these, the the punks, a lot of the punks hung out with the speed metal and the thrash metal kids. And that was another influence and another subculture that we were into, but it was all just sort of like rejection of status quo values. Uh, And that was where I felt like I could actually finally fit in and yeah, find my people. Well, I think it's interesting too. So since, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, your dad worked for the government, right? Yeah. And, um, so in terms of like more political punk and hardcore, how did that sort of hit you in terms of like the, especially like the rebelliousness? Cause you, I mean, it probably hit close to home as well as like living where you were living as you just described. And, you know, as far as like your own sort of not feeling like you fit in. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think for, uh, again, to, to cast back to sort of the mindset of people in the eighties, uh, you know, my dad had been in the army. My grandfather had been in the army. My dad was, you know, when I was a teenager, was uh, working for a federal government agency. My mother had worked for the NSA. Um, and I think the thing that I took from that time period is that I was scared about the end of the world, man. Like, everyone totally. thought we were going to have a nuclear war with the Russians. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everyone thought that it was, like, a, a like total possibility that we would have a, a third world war that would just devastate everything. And it's really hard, I think, for people now to understand that, but this is before the, the end of the Cold War. This is when nuclear tensions are super high. There was school, My dad, school drills, when he was right? in the army, was dispatched to Florida with the plan to invade Cuba during the Cuban Missile mm-hmm. Crisis. Mm-hmm. Wow. So these are things like that, you know, having conversations with my family, but also in the popular culture. Like, I remember seeing... Uh, the day after the the movie about 
mm-hmm. about nuclear war when I was in grade school, and we were all sort of affected by that Cold War time. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, like, a lot of the political punk that was going on then was, like, super hyper-directed at Reagan and the Reagan administration. Uh, you know, out here with the sort of the com- combo of uh, hardcore and in the uh, during the, the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco with, you know, Homocore and, um, and ACT UP being pretty, a lot of the, the guys that were involved in those organizations were, well, Homocore obviously, but ACT UP were, grew up punk kids as well. And, um, but there was, I, I feel like, you know, the, the time was like perfectly ripe for like extremely, it is now too, obviously, but at that time, like that, that was like the awakening of really political punk and hardcore. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, definitely. And, you know, I, I mentioned that we had met, um, back when available was still a band and, you know, I know you were super tight with those guys. Um, one of the people that jumped on Facebook you know, because I, I, I always post and let people ask questions if they're interested, asked, you know, there was two sort of related questions. One was, do you ever get interrupted when you're interviewing any of these guys that may have a little bit of a punk background to ask if, if you're the guy that put out Satiate, the first <laughs> record? And the other was, what, what's your favorite, your, your top maybe five hardcore records of the early 90s? Yeah, so no, yeah, nobody ever asked me about, about punk stuff or so any funny. of that stuff, no. Um, nobody does. I don't, you know, I think it, people realize that I come from that scene, but they don't tend to bring it up. So let's see, punk and hardcore records from the early nineties. So, and that was Scott Torgerson, by the way, just to be clear that he, ah, uh, okay. He, so, um, the first born against seven inch, the Rorschach album, probably the second avail album. Um, Let's see what else. What else in that time period? Uh, there's a ton of music I liked in that time period. Yeah. I'm, I'm spacing on it yeah. right now. I think, um, yeah, those would be like three uh, oh, of sure. my of my favorites. I remember, yeah, definitely from that from that time period bands that I was really into. I think when we, when I put Avail on at the at, in Santa Rosa, I think we charged like four bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's to- totally, yeah. yeah. Four dollars, three bands. You know, and I, I was pretty sure the whole place was going to collapse when Avail played. There was like people in the rafters. It people going, went totally nuts. They went nuts, nuts when Avail played. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, when I met you, you also had dreadlocks and I believe a, a pretty big nose piercing as well, like a septum or something. Yeah, yeah. And I rocked that style like even into like my first newspaper job. You know, so yeah, so yeah, like I, I rocked that style like well after it was worn out for sure. You just, you just walked in there, <laughs> fuck you, won't do what you told me. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Well, yeah. so you you did now? Did you go to college for journalism? No, no, I didn't go to. I like I spent a minute at San Francisco State, and I I like um I was like a walk on there. I wasn't enrolled. I was just taking classes, right. and I collected the trash there as well. Mm-hmm. And um, then I bailed on that after like a semester or two. Right. Um, I didn't have the the proper. I would not. I could not get admitted to college because of my transcripts from high school, which were not so great. Right. right. Um, so I was like, I had this notion for a while that I was going to, um, you know, take take classes there and eventually transfer it in and be properly admitted. But I bailed on that before it was done. Before I got even close, and then. Um, when I was in my 
early 20s, I went through a, a journalism training program right. in San Francisco, which no longer exists, but it, it trained uh, young people in their teens and 20s mm. into uh, teaching them how to do the basics of journalism. And we put out a newspaper called Youth Outlook. Right. And for a while, we had a radio show and I vaguely remember radio this. commentaries and so forth. And so that's how I learned the craft of journalism. And, and there were I was, was brought that? in there like by another punk rock guy who who introduced me to the crew there. And that's like how I learned the trade. That's awesome. Who, um, what, about what year was that? Um, maybe 95. Yeah. 95. Something like I that. feel like maybe I started 96. running into you again in San Francisco in maybe like 98 or so, like just around town. I think maybe, were you working for the guardian at that point? Yeah. In 98, I started working for the guardian. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty, like there, there's a pretty obvious question here, but I want to ask it anyway. T- talk to us a little bit about how punk has influenced your sort of your writing and the things you investigate, because one of the criticisms I see, especially for more, I guess, what the general public would consider left leaning um, investigative journalists is that they're like, everything has a, a bent on it or it's got a, you know, bias or all this other stuff. But I mean, I, I, I personally, my response to that is always, well, you're going to write about what interests you. Like the right. things that interest you, you're going to spend time investigating if you're an investigative journalist, because otherwise your job sucks. You <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, the thing that's the first thing I should say is like, I'm a really lucky person because for most of the last 20 years, I've assigned myself stories. Right. You know, very rarely as an editor, or a producer told me to go what to go out and investigate. It's almost entirely self-generated. And it's gone through tons and tons of different phases of what I was intrigued by and what I was interested in um, and what I thought I could do a good job at. But, you know, for me, like fundamentally what I do is I look at needless human suffering. And if I am looking at a situation where people are suffering there's no need for them to do so. To me, that is a good story to do. Hmm. Um, if it, there, There's a component to it as well that it has to be substantial enough that I can really spend time on it. I can find the people who are responsible and accountable for that suffering. And I can do the sort... And it's the sort of story that merits a long investment. You know, this is not a, a story about somebody got um, shortchanged uh, on the change that they were supposed to get back when they were buying coffee is more right. a story about somebody was murdered, somebody was killed by the police, somebody um, was attacked by, uh, you know, fascist goons, whatever. It's it's more substantial. What a- but so to me, like, it all sort of goes back to that sort of, you know, punk ethic that there are things that are wrong and messed up in the world and uh, that there's actions that individuals can take to address those wrongs you know did did you have did you find that you had this sense of justice before journalism like did you did you were you the type of person that saw like kid getting picked on and and stood up for him like that type of thing or is it something that sort of came a hold of you later yeah yeah and i was that kid who got picked on you know so that was that's the sort of thing is is to have you know i'm sort of imbued with a deep underdog uh, mentality, and I didn't like that sort of behavior when I saw it. And I should make it clear, like, when I was growing up, my neighborhood was, like, the sort of the only integrated uh, neighborhood in my school. So mm-hmm. all the, the poor kids and kids of color rode the school bus. We were all in the same neighborhood. 
to a school that was otherwise all white. And so the things that I saw, things I experienced were maybe different than a lot of other kids and sort of fostered a notion of a sense of injustice and an understanding of those kind of dynamics that maybe not all white suburban kids, you know, white suburban kids probably don't always have, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of interesting because that's one of the other, you know, the interesting thing that I hear a lot of times from, you know, and I'll just say it honestly, I don't understand why people on the right are so offended by the investigation of, you know, the the newer white power movement and the newer, like, American Nazi movement. It, it's always interesting to me that they're like, they want to point fingers at bias and other things, but never actually say that the reporting is untrue. You know, it's just like, right. oh, that's biased. Well, but it's still true. Like it doesn't the, – the, the actual like reasoning behind why the person who's reporting is interested in this subject is actually irrelevant. It's like being as, biased against scabies. Right. As long as, right. As long as the, the reporting is 100 percent true. But I, uh, one of the other criticisms that, that I've kind of like heard – and you spoke to it without me asking the question – was this idea that like somehow like reporting on this – white nationalism and this sort of like hard right conservative movement is um, only interested in where white people are racist, but, you know, and like it's coming from generally like these like middle class, upper class white people that are offended by it. But the fact Mm -hmm. of the matter is you just kind of spoke to the fact that you grew up in an extremely diverse, you know, neighborhood in what is really one of the strangely and, and, in many ways, ironically, that it's the hub of the the United States government is still, in my opinion, an extremely segregated part of the country. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. You know, in Charlottesville, right after Heather Heyer was killed, I, I remember going to the uh, the county government building there and the, the um, governor was there, the mayor of Charlottesville, a million cops who were patting everyone down, were in full tactical dress, mm. AR-15s, chem, chem and biological gear out, and because they didn't know if there was going to be a terrorist attack. They didn't know if people would come in there and start shooting. They didn't know right. what would happen. And there were these, you know, reporters from, like, Infowars and Breitbart, and they were screaming at the public officials, are you going to do anything about Antifa? Are you going to do anything about Antifa? <laughs> And I'm thinking, wow, that's like the first thing that comes to your mind when 30 people just got run over by a fucking car. Like, that's what comes to your mind? Because that, you know, I, that wouldn't be the first thing that, that obviously that wasn't the first thing that came to right. my mind. And what I realized is that there is this story that is that is out there and it sort of circulates through social media and it circulates through highly politicized media channels that this is, um, that the liberal media is overly focused on the new wave of fascist and extreme right groups. And they don't care to report on anti-fascist groups and militant anti-fascist groups. And they're doing all this reporting just to make Donald Trump look bad. And that's basically the sort of narrative in these places and places like Breitbart and the daily caller and, and a million Facebook groups and so forth. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, you know, there's, I think for a lot of people, a uh, inability to actually grapple with the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is this. If you understand social movements theory, then you understand that 
social movements that are happening on the ground often exist um, in relationship to powerful people in public office. If you look back at the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the civil rights movement swelled and grew and gained strength when it started to have supporters in public office who said uh, for the first time, like, oh, yeah, maybe black liberation is a thing that we can embrace. Maybe right. civil rights and equal rights for people of color is something that we can support. Because those politicians changed their minds about things or because polling data like changed their minds because the people changed? For lots of different reasons. Right. But, but when the movement started seeing that they might have successes and started having successes, it grew. Right. In the same way, if you want to look at the grim reverse mirror image of it, if you look today, the reason that the extreme right and the racist right have blown up in the last couple of years is because they believed that they had a champion in office who embraced uh. many of the same values that they did, who was saying the things that they believed, and they felt that on some issues they could win. And that's why the movement exploded. And you can't detach it from right. Trumpism. It is definitely, a, in part, a product of Trumpism. Yeah, I would. I mean, I I agree. I mean, I I feel like many of the the people that I've seen, especially you know, and I've watched both the documentaries, the the um, the ones that you did for Frontline more recently. Um, oh, real the, quick aside, my wife and I watched those and just were totally cheering boring. and yeah. yeah, just fantastic job, like truly, truly, truly good work. Well, and some of the the just the people that are marching and are involved look to me like people that if they weren't emboldened by this idea that they could get away with it would not have been there mm-hmm. in a position to be filmed and other things they would have still been hiding in their basements you right, know and right. that's that's a big accusation on both sides i hear it all the time i'm not trying to be like typical oh, yeah. with this comment but the fact of the matter is that generally people that have that are in a position of having an ideal especially around hatred that is generally frowned upon by most of the public are not going to come out of their hiding places unless they feel like there's enough numbers to support them. It happened in Napa in the, in the eighties with the, or the ni- early nineties with the, uh, skinheads. with the skinhead mm-hmm. Woodstock, um, you know, and it's an argument that I've had repeatedly and I, I should not get involved in these arguments online because I, I actually get mad in my real life about this sometimes, and it's hard to wash that away. But, you know, when people are like, oh, you're virtue signaling, or you're doing this other stuff to show, I'm like, I've been fighting Nazis since I was a teenager. Like, this is nothing new. They used to show up to shows in Santa Rosa when I was, like, 16 years old <laughs> just to beat people up. Do you think it's fair to say there's an acceptable amount of Nazis, and it's a no. small amount hiding somewhere? <laughs> that, where, well, sort of, <laughs> you know, and then, but now it's, like, unaccepted. There's too many now. you got to go back to the, like, there's four or five, yeah. you know? I think it's one of the things I want to roll back to, though, that you kind of that you mentioned, but we didn't we didn't jump into was all the police that were there during the press conference after Heather Heyer was killed, fully in tactical gear, ready for whatever was going to come. And I'm going to say this in a sort of a partially crude way because it should be asked this way. Where the fuck were they when these guys were showing up with shields and guns and firing their weapons and running people over? Why weren't they there with tactical gear? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you actually hit on a, on a sort of key thing, which is that um, because there was remarkably bad planning, coordination between this, the Virginia State Police and the local police in Charlottesville, um, they actually didn't have their shields or any of that other stuff posted 
with them. They didn't, they weren't wearing that stuff and it wasn't somewhere close to where the front lines of the street conflict was. And so they actually um, were unable to uh, inter. Partially that's one of the reasons why they didn't intervene immediately. No, part of what happened though, is that there was a, with that whole thing in Charlottesville is the history is pretty interesting. You know, it starts off and there's a, an alt-right event with Richard Spencer and, you know, that, that they, they basically get away with that. And a few months later, there's a Klan march and people say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to put up with this. And as, as has happened for most of the last 50 years, it was a pretty contentious and at times violent event with counter protesters going after Klan's people and vice versa. And the Charlottesville police used tear gas and had pretty harsh crowd control response to that. And I think part of what you get by the time a couple months later or a month later, when you have the big Unite the Right event in Charlottesville is that the police said, well, hey, the last time we came and we did all the normal crowd control stuff and everybody said that we were mean and it was too much. So this time we're going to let these guys fight it out and we're not going to intervene forcefully like we did before. Mm -hmm. And things basically got out of control. Uh, And by the time people were getting killed, they're like, oh, I guess we should actually get involved now. But it was by then it was obviously too late. Why is it that our parent, like grandparents' generation, it was like, let's go fight the Nazis. Let's all join the army and fight the Nazis. Why aren't the police fighting the Nazis? Like, what, you know, what? I mean, you know, I, I think like what you'll find in some places, it's it, it's some in some places, um, the the police are not particularly sympathetic to the militant anti-fascists. And you can understand why the, yeah. the yeah. militant anti-fascists don't like the police. They signal as much. They've said as much. They're the same people that have been involved in black block riots at various times. So the police a lot of times don't have a ton of sympathy or support for those folks. At times they may have some sympathy for some of the far right groups, the proud boy types groups or Patriot prayer type groups or the three percenter militia type groups. Um, but I think it's also, it's more complex than that because if you look at the police forces today, they, you know, that is actually a very diverse workforce. And so I don't think that you're going to like, you don't tend to find a ton of open white supremacist, you know, pro-Nazi types in police forces today. The police force you go to, what you may find is you may find an African-American police officer beating an African-American civilian, or you may find a Latino police officer beating a Latino uh, civilian or other sorts of conflicts. So it's, with policing, it's like, it's not like a thing anymore, I think, where it's like a really, where you can make a really vulgar reduction and say, hey, there's a lot of like people who are sympathetic to white supremacists in the ranks. I think there are some, but I think it's dramatically different than it was 30 or 40 years ago. But I also think in a lot of places, there's not a ton of sympathy or support for the militant left. Right. Well, and I mean, in some ways, what you mentioned, um, as far as like, it, there's outward sort of, you know, anger and, you know, resentment towards the police from the militant left that you're not going to get from the, the extreme right either. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, because a, a lot, lot of the extreme right people are Blue Lives Matter kind yeah. of people. They're pro yeah. law, very pro-law enforcement. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. But also, you know, there's a difference between um, 
in 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 you know simply in in their their belief systems. I mean, many of the the extreme uh, right are you know law and order type you know rule of law supposedly people you know to the degree that it, it is you know it doesn't affect their whiteness you know. Um, and on the on the on the same vein on the left, there's a very anarchist sort of you know bent, bent to it, which yeah. is you know fight the man, fight the power. So. You know, I mean, it's understandable. It's also, you know, it comes down to much of the same issue we have everywhere, which is communication and people actually being able to sit down and talk to each other without having the, you know, the the years and years of history and anger at each other. Yeah, well. yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's so interesting. Out of the the year of the the big far right demonstrations and counter demonstrations, what you heard from uh, members of both factions was the same thing that they felt like the police were not adequately supporting them or treating them fairly. Both groups did, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, two of the things I just want to touch on, and I'd like to talk about some of your other, your other sort of, you know, uh, investigations, because there's some really interesting stuff in there that I think our listeners will want to hear about. But watching the documentaries and reading the articles, which I've done both of, and I'm, you know, this is something that I'm, that I've been relatively, you know, borderline obsessed on in some ways, just because of the history that I personally have had with neo-Nazi movements sort of invading the punk scene and doing other crazy shit over the years um, that I took from the documentaries. The, the, probably the two most disturbing pieces for me, one was the, the actually the, the torch march in Charlottesville the night before and just the, the vitriol towards the people on the campus that were sort of waiting as a counter demonstration in such small numbers. Um, and the, and the video that was taken from that was just, it was, it was almost unbelievable how much hate was, was being generated by that, by the, the group of men that showed up with the torches, you know, the, and, and also the chance. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, I don't know. Anyone that can label that as like a both sides issue to me wasn't watching. Um, and then the second part uh, that was super disturbing was the fact that there, the, the, the people in the military and then beyond that, the one guy that you tracked down um, from Orange County that had uh, security clearance. Right. I mean, they're, they're in our government. <laughs> they're, they're in our military. And they're also in some of the most extreme of the hate groups that you've investigated over the last few years. Yeah. I would say, you know, I was sitting um, in the park where we were expecting the torchlight march to set off from. And I was sitting there with my colleague, Kareem, and we thought it was going to start at like nine and the sun falls and there's nobody there. There's like four guys sitting at a picnic table and Kareem saying to me, I don't think anyone's going to show up. I think it'll be like four proud boys and that'll be it. And I think this is going to be a bust. And then suddenly in a matter of minutes, several hundred people had converged from all different sides in tight groups Hmm. with uh, communicating by radios and formed up this massive line for their procession, got all their torches together and their signs together and this was a matter of minutes and it was sort of a level huh. of military right uh, well that's what it looks like sophistication and like technique 
there that the organization was actually pretty amazing and pretty scary. Uh, and that was the first thing that stuck, stuck out to us. Like we, you know, it went from being four people in a park to being in a matter of minutes, hundreds. Mm-hmm. And they were all in perfect form. Hold on, AC. Okay. That someone hurt because the group, uh, the white supremacists who assembled, they were so excited and they were so mad and they were so happy to be public and out and together as racists. And this was a great taboo that they were breaking in current society and they were just incredibly empowered by that moment, you know? Uh, so we, yeah, we pretty much expected something horrendous was going to happen. And, you know, again, there was no police there and, um, you know, no sort of the big police action that we saw before people started getting beaten was these campus cops harassing Kareem about having a drone, like no drones, man, no drones. And Kareem's like, hey, look, there's all these Nazis here who are threatening to kill people and put them in ovens. Like, that seems kind of, like, more pressing, you know? Yeah. But, but they didn't <laughs> seem to think that. Um, the, that's been the thing. I, I think, like, as we've looked, we've seen, like, a lot more infiltration of the military by white supremacists than, than um, – the ranks of police, right. which is interesting to us. And I don't know why. I think in the past it would have been sort of more flipped around. Right. Hmm. But yeah, we've seen as we've done these investigations, lots of people with military connections, former soldiers, former Marines, current soldiers, current Marines who are involved in these movements. And that seems to be a sort of persistent uh, hotbed for activity. Interesting. That's really interesting. So I have a couple of just really brief questions so we can kind of wrap this segment up, just, you know, talking about this specific issue. One is, have you been personally threatened by any of these groups? Yeah, I can't talk about that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately. But yeah, um, all I can say is that's, that's something that, that, I, that I shouldn't talk about. But what I can say more broadly is that everybody that covers this beat mm-hmm. for any length of time right. will become the victim of harassment of some sort. And yep. it's just a matter of degrees. Sure. Sure. I mean, I've had just in my my, you know, fighting trolls, I've had people's inbox me crazy stuff. Mm. Like, Don't be surprised if the sons of freedom are on your lawn tomorrow kind of stuff. <laughs> right. So, you know, and I don't even right. know what that means exactly. But, you know, and at sons the time of I freedom, there's such nerds. I, I didn't man. have I didn't actually have a lawn. So I was like, I, you guys are just so far out of pocket right now. So right, um, right. what about, um, you know, and this is actually this kind of question was generated by by my wife because she was wondering this and, and watching these intense documentaries and reading these stories with me. How do you kind of wash yourself of this energy when you get home? Like, what do you do mm. to kind of shed this stuff? Because this is, I mean, this is some heavy duty hate, man. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think it's a I think it's kind of hard to do, honestly, to some extent. You know, um, for a long time, my uh, photos on my phone would be like pictures of my family, nice stuff, beautiful right. landscapes, and then like Nazis. And it would alternate. <laughs> yeah. And you'd sort of be on a plane scrolling through those and think like, oh, my life is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. you'd feel like, yeah, there is no escape. I'd be on a plane um, and I'd open up my computer and I'd just be like, oh my God, the person sitting next to me is going to freak out because <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's just Nazi shit. <laughs> and um, Or like crime scene photos from Nazis killing each other, that kind of thing. Right. 
Um, so it's a, it's a hard thing. I mean, I think in general, my job is like other jobs where people are close to trauma and violence right. and horrible injustice, which is that, and, and what happens, I think with all of us is that we get fucked up by it. We get vicariously traumatized. We're partially attracted to that violence and that drama because it, it's exciting and it's, yep. it's invigorating and it gives your life a sense of purpose and meaning, totally. but it also is damaging to us. And I think like, for me, when I come home, the thing that I try to do the most is not be in the workspace and try mm-hmm. to not think about work. Right. And that's sort of a rule in my house as much as possible. We don't talk about work. We don't do that. And I focus on the things that, that I like to do and that I'm interested in. I'm trying to just be out of that. And then when I go back to work, I may be gone for weeks or months at a time, but then it's a 100% in. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm so Saturday morning, I'm going into San Quentin to speak to the restorative justice group there. And every time I go in, when I leave, it's always like, oh my God. It's like so stressful in there. And, yeah. you know, it's hard not to carry that energy out with me. Um, which kind of leads me into some of the other stuff, the investigations you've done in the past that I, I think are, are certainly worth mentioning. I know this has been sort of your focus. I want to close that with just saying thank you for doing the reporting you're doing. And I, I know you can't, you don't feel like you can talk about it, but having my own personal experience with these groups, I know what kind of harassment goes on and I know how difficult it can be. And, you know, and in many ways there's a, you know, it's it's a real threat, and you know, I just appreciate the work you've done. So you're I want to thank you for thank it. Thank you. You're a thank real you. life Nazi hunter. <laughs> like this is fucking awesome. Yeah. You know, and if you haven't, if you're listening, like go check out those frontline documentaries yeah, because amazing. they're really uh, eye opening. Yeah. Um, you early on when you were working at the Bay Guardian and really getting, I guess, started in the more investigative part of your 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 you know your career did an amazing piece on the San Francisco police, which ended up getting somebody released from prison. Mm. Um, and this is one of the things, and I, you know, I, I will say going back to the punk thing and I, I don't want to play like showering AC with, you know, like praise, but I will say knowing some of the other people that we mutually know, like Ben Sizemore and Martin Sprouse and some of these other guys um, that have, that also are very interested in the work that you do along with knowing you personally, that you, you've always felt like our guy, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, he's our guy. He's out there. He's he's another one of the punk kids that grew up and did awesome stuff. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I just, I want to just say that too. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to follow your career and read, read not only the well-written articles and the well-investigated articles, but see the results. And I think like, you know, I, I'd just like you to talk a little bit about what it was like when you did the SF police investigation, found out, um, and you can talk about, you know, you can name names and all that stuff, but talk about what it felt like when this guy got out after, you know, being falsely convicted. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I talked about this a while back. That, that was in 2001 when I did those stories. And um, at that time, I was still rocking the, the dreadlocks. And I was, when I did that reporting, I did it by by BMX bike and would ride around San Francisco on a BMX bike, going to the hall of justice and lawyers offices and stuff. Um, and all invariably had headphones on and it's 2001. So I'd have a CD player and I'd be like playing some punk thing, or I played a lot of obituary at that time, the death metal band, all (laughs) kinds of stuff. It's just funny to think about like uh, a character like that coming up in the middle of this, the criminal justice system in San Francisco and sort of, 
uh, causing a big stir. So, you know, that was, that was really like where I learned to do this work. And what happened was, was Matt Gonzalez, who is a sort of permanent, permanent fixture in San Francisco, the former yeah. supervisor and uh, defense lawyer, public office. defender contacted yeah. me and said, Hey, you know, my, my boss, Jeff Adachi, um, has this case and had this client and he thinks the guy's innocent. And I don't know if he is or not, but you should come over and talk to, to Jeff about it. Okay. And, uh, I went over and saw Jeff and, you know, the story he told me was, was compelling. And he said, look, um, I've represented many, many people. This was my first murder trial. Mm -hmm. My client's name was John J. Tennyson. Um, I think I didn't do everything perfectly in the murder trial. I was young. I was inexperienced. But he said, I think the police lied, and I think my guy's innocent, and nobody cares. Mm. And can you just take a look at it and see? And he just handed me his files. He gave me a big box full of his files, and he said, Go through and read everything. I'll give you anything you want. Take this. I'll tell you anything you need to know. Just read the, read the case files without me being there and tell me what you think. And, uh, you know, I thought, like, eventually I thought, like, these things just don't add up in this story. This is, like, this is what would be a Netflix right. uh, mm-hmm. hit documentary series now. Like, you go back and look at all the, the evidence and you realize, like, no, this guy was framed from the jump. You know, it was, like the police theory was that um, John Tennyson was driving around uh, San Francisco on the night of the killing and he was driving his car and he used it and, and drove, chased this guy around and got out of the car and shot him to death. And John says, yeah, that's a good theory and everything, except my car was in the impound lot because you guys ticketed it and towed it. Hmm. And he has a slip from his car being impounded, you know? And so then the police come up with another theory. Well, John had two cars that looked almost exactly the same. And one was this hidden secret car. And he's like 19 years old, 18 years old at the time mm. that nobody has ever seen. And the other one was the one that was impounded. I mean, it was just preposterous. And what, what it turned out was that John and his co-defendant, Antoine Goff, had been absolutely framed and railroaded by the police. And the, and the police officers that framed and railroaded them were two incredibly prominent African-American police officers. So you had two African-American defendants who were uh, unjustly convicted, framed by the police. The people that framed them were heroes of the civil rights movement who had been key to integrating the San Francisco police force and had then become corrupted during their time in the the department. Hmm. And eventually when John and Antoine got out, 2003, I remember John's mom calling me and she just said, it's going to happen. My, my baby's going to be free and he's getting out. Go, let's go see him. And I, I was just stunned, you know, just, uh. it was just this incredible feeling um, of happiness, joy, relief um, that the sense that one thing that I had done <laughs> in my career as a journalist had actually had some sort of um, effect in the real world. And it was incredibly rewarding. And to see John and Antoine after they got out and to hang out with them and to have them say, thank you. And 
just to get to be able to share free air with them yeah. was incredibly, incredibly uh, moving, you know? So I have a photo of the three of us hanging out and it's like one of the most uh, treasured possessions of mine. Well, I mean, I got to say, if, I, if I'm a public official, a police officer, a secret neo-Nazi, <laughs> any of that stuff, and I see your name or I hear your name on my voicemail, I'm probably going to go go hide somewhere at this point. Because <laughs> this went on. No. I mean, you, you did a, a huge you, – you, you spent time in Kabul, mm. which I also think is worth mentioning, which is not the friendliest city to Westerners, especially at that time. Um, you know, there was a lot going on, still is, but you were there, uh, investigating some pretty intense stuff, uh, without a lot of like, uh, financial and, you know, and sort of support of the people that would have had to help you <laughs> had you gotten in trouble over there because there was some government involvement in this as well. Um, and then also the, the investigation you did in New Orleans after Katrina, which I mean, obviously completely changed your career, um, because it was well noted by many, many other journalists at that point. And, you know, obviously we have a, a finite amount of time, but I, I would love to hear just a little, like a sort of like your best parts of those two stories. And especially with the outcomes, one of the goals of our podcast is to really give people like, especially at this time, given the political co- climate, some positivity and some hope mm-hmm. that they're, you know, that work can actually change things. And those two instances, along with, you know, the story about John Tennyson, and um, what's been going on with you outing, you know, fascists is for me, it, it gives a lot of hope. And, you know, it's a very, se- they're all very serious subjects, but the, the endings are so lighthearted in some ways and so like inspiring um, that I think it, those two w- are worth mentioning as well. I would also add like, not just not just the, um, <clears throat> the hope that we, that this podcast is about, but the DIY aspect yeah. of it, like just like think when, when, when AC tells these stories he's about to tell, remember it started on a BMX bike in yeah. San Francisco, you know? <laughs> With like, no college degree. Like, if you want to do it, go do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, and I should say also, you know, when I was doing the stories about the wrongful convictions, about John Tennyson and Antoine Goff, like, I got schooled by an old school um, private investigator, a guy right. named Ed Owasa. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he really... Um, explain to me how you do these investigations right i think that's a thing that i think is useful for people to realize it's like to always throughout your life seek out mentors seek out people that can can teach you uh never to think that you know everything but really to think that you know a little fraction of something and that the more your knowledge base expands the better you'll be at whatever you're doing so you know um Go, doing, we did the investigation myself and Trevor Paglin, who's a very successful contemporary artist, uh, writer, and thinker, uh, who also comes from the punk scene. We did the investigation on the CIA's torture and rendition programs, uh, went to Afghanistan to report on that. And for us, you know, the, the, the lesson there, honestly, was like we didn't have deep government sources. We didn't right. have the imprimatur of the Washington Post or New York Times, all we had was ingenuity and sort of a DIY ethos. Right. And so what we were able to do was, using our research skills, sort of uncover the mechanics of... the. (laughs) Hold on one sec. That's my little guy. He's yeah. sick. He needs to go eat his dinner. Go. 
right. Bye. How old is uh, he? So. See, you were talking about Afghanistan. I think you, you know, what we were able to do is sort of um, using our research skills, map out the backside of the rendition operations. We were able to sort of do corporate research to understand what are the front companies that the CIA is using to oh, fly right. these planes, to take people to torture zones around the world, to oh, take wow. them to dungeons. Who's involved in this in the U.S. on the business side? And that was the sort of thing that we could do without having a bunch of sources within the CIA and within the government. Right. And that was just, you know, sort of like the, the DIY way to do it. You know, with, with New Orleans, when I went down there, sort of, I think a thing to take away from that is Rebecca Solnit, the writer and, and author, contacted me and she said, hey, you know, I'm working on a book about the history of disasters. I'm hearing that people, uh, that white dudes after Hurricane Katrina formed militias and hunted African-American men. What? I don't know if it's true or not, but you're an investigative reporter. Why don't you come try to find out? And I think the thing that I take away from that is to be willing to share to, you know, if she had never called me and said, hey, somebody else can help figure this out. I'm not going to do it on my own. I'm willing to share the credit and the work with someone else. Mm. And I never would have done that story. And talk about the outcome of that really quickly. And- yeah. So it, so it turned out, yeah, groups, packs of, of white men were hunting African-American men. Um, one of them is currently serving a prison term for federal hate crimes charges for shooting an African-American man in the throat with a shotgun. We named that guy. We helped bring about those charges, myself and my colleagues. Um, our investigation took us into the police, and we pretty soon realized, like, oh, it wasn't just, like, white civilians who were shooting people. It was the police as well. And, uh, you know, basically the reporting we did there led to a string of federal prosecutions of police officers, led to complete turnover in the, the New Orleans Police Department, it led to um, the federal government coming in and imposing a consent decree on the department. So basically they are monitoring and have essentially taken an oversight role to clean up the police department. So it led to a lot of significant changes, I would say. Wow. I would agree. It also led to an award. Is that? Yeah, a few. Yeah. A few. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, so, you know, I mean, like. The, I know that's the not the that's point. important to me out of all that is there was a guy named named Henry Glover and he was shot by the police and they took his corpse and set it on fire and burnt it up and then lied to his family about it and lied about what happened for years. And we were able to bring them, myself and my colleagues, um, answers because they didn't know what happened to Henry. They didn't know how he died. They didn't know how he got burnt up. They didn't know what the police were covering up. And we were able to bring them answers and hope and an explanation and that was, you know, that's what matters to me. I love the idea that, that some of this started because someone did was willing to, to, like you say, like share credit and get help with someone else. Like, that's pretty powerful. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing, the big takeaway from this is, like, again, going back to some of the criticism, and I even saw some today, um, bad people are everywhere. 
It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. That's not the important part. The important part is that there's people with the skill set that are willing to use it and be brave enough to stand up. And telling truth to power is a really difficult thing. And we're talking about police officers, the CIA. You know, multiple occasions here, you've sort of taken the the best parts, in my opinion, of you know what we learn growing up as punks about taking care of each other you know and applied it to your work as an adult and that's quite honestly that's what this is all about for jo- for Joshua and I is like taking the best parts of what we learned as punks and applying it as adults so that we can give other people that feel like they don't belong whatever the reason and you don't have to be a punk kid you know wherever you come from and taking the best parts of what you learned growing up the adversity the good stuff the community and applying it to what you're doing now and that's that's what to us like a adulting well, you know, we use that term kind of jokingly at times too, is all about, which leads me to two other things. You got featured on the HBO, you know, series. Put this one up first next Monday, probably. Monday. I thought we were kicking off with Larry. Okay. So let's get Larry's up this week. I meant next week it comes up, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Sorry about that, Kevin. If you want to ask it again. No, well, so what I was asking about, is Josh is making marks on where we need to cut. So um, the HBO series, um, Treme characterized you, um, you know, and how, how did that feel to have somebody playing you in a, in an HBO, I mean, I'm like an HBO junkie, so. Well, I saw Treme. <laughs> He's in there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really fun. You know, I worked on 12 of those episodes, mm-hmm. and I read the scripts, and I gave thoughts, and in a couple places, I suggested dialogue that ended up on television. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, that whole crew of people, um, David Simon. Yeah. And Eric Overmeyer and the rest, like, they were so interested in creating um, a show that, did two things that that really built on true reality in New right. Orleans at that time and, and true facts and incorporated real people from the city into the show and then also sort of built a mythology and a and fictional storylines out of that. So it was a very unique sort of uh, show and process. And it was honestly just really fun to work on. That's awesome. David Simons also was an investigative reporter, right? Something right, like that. yeah. He's a he's definitely an interesting guy. So so here we are in, you know, the night of the uh, State of the Union, and we're doing this instead, um, which is interesting for a reporter. And I think, uh, uh, you know, you know, and that's not a dig at all. I, if I was home, I wouldn't probably be watching it, but I'll watch the highlights tonight. Um, talk to, obviously, we just met your son. Uh, <laughs> so you're married you have a son um and do you have any dogs or pets of any kind cats no no you know i have motorcycles a four yeah. by four a lot of bicycles you know things like that anything to get outside and, we, and get in the dirt and get out of out of town we've noticed the fox logos on your computer on the documentaries right, right, pointed, right. pointed out again by my wife does he ride i said yes he, he definitely rides it's it's not. It's not just a, 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 a you know, like name dropping. He's he's serious about it. <laughs> so that that definitely came up. So, 
you know, what's it like doing all this stuff and traveling around and, and maintaining your home life? Uh, you know, I, it's challenging. Yeah. It's challenging. Last year, I missed everybody's birthday. I missed like every, pretty much every holiday. Um, I missed the first day of school. I missed the last day of school. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, but it's also at this point, um, I'm kind of a feral adult. You know, like I do better if I am gone for some period of time, if I'm out of the office, if I'm out on the road, if I'm out in the natural environment, you know, rather than being at a computer and at a desk. And I think my wife knows that. I think everyone around me sort of knows that. And that's that's when I'm happy is when the days are all different, when different things happen every day, where you meet different people every day, and there's a different challenge. Sure, it gives you a chance to miss home too when you're out, right? I mean, it does, it does. Um, yeah, you know, and it gives them a chance to be away from me and, and not have to put up with my shit. <laughs> you know? The the audience can't see, but you have a bunch of books behind you, and I just keep trying to figure out like which one is hollowed out and filled with ninja stars. <laughs> because <laughs> after hearing about all the different groups you've taken on, I just keep thinking I'd want a bunch of ninja stars. Gotta but, ask too, what's the sweatshirt you're wearing right now? Uh, it's a Thomas Hooper sweatshirt. This okay. was actually in a film or two. He's one of the, the people that tattoos me. Yeah. And he's like another old punk metalhead uh, guy lives in, in Texas and tattoos and paints. Awesome. So we're going to wrap pretty quick. I, I actually would just like to say, you know, a big thank you. And this was, this was obviously hard to schedule. We both had family stuff. You had a lot of stuff going on with the documentaries. Um, I had to flake on the, a night that would have been perfect just cause I, you know, that had some stuff, a little emergency happen, but you know, this is a, a huge deal for me personally, because as I mentioned earlier, like I've always felt watching your career and being as like socially minded as I am doing what I do as well. Um, like these are the things that are important. And, you know, when when you can look back on your career and you've done things like, you know, get gotten people who are wrongly convicted out of prison, um, you know, brought to justice people who have who have been trusted by the public and have done wrong, um, and continue to expose people that are, you know, in my opinion, you know, really, like, against, you know, what is truly happening in the world today. And, you know, people can try to roll back to 1776 all they want, but the fact of the matter is we live in a very, very, very diverse world that is super Mm -hmm. entangled, and, you know, walls are not going to stop commerce and people talking to each other and having the ability to communicate over, you know, platforms like social media and, you know, Google Hangouts like we are tonight. And, you know, but I think your work speaks Sponsored volumes. Sponsored by Google. Yeah. got a wish. Um, <laughs> speaks volumes to, you know, hanging on to the things that we grew up with that are truly part of our being, you know. And, you know, I just want to say, like, one more time without, you know, like, too many accolades just thank you for the work you do and and you know we really appreciate your time tonight and if if you have any piece of advice for people that are trying to get started in your career path you know please share it now and if you have anything else you want to share with us we'd love to hear it so yeah thank you so much for having me on and it's it is super appreciated and i'm fans of the the work that you guys are doing um you know the thing that i was going to say earlier and i'm glad to have a chance to say it now is Look, to me, this is a blue collar profession. It's not a white collar profession. Like if you understand the basic steps of investigative reporting, it's like building a house. It's like 
working on a car. It's, it's not, it takes skill. It takes thoughtfulness, but it's not a super highbrow thing. It's anybody can, anybody with a little bit of brains, a little bit of determination uh, and desire to work can do it. And I always try to teach these skills in different settings. So to artists, to community groups, to activists, to young journalists and remind them like, you know, when you haven't done this work, it seems uh, almost mystical and mm-hmm. uh, hard to do and super challenging. And once you've done it a bunch of times, you realize like, oh, there's basic steps that I take on every story, on every film. And if I execute those steps, um, I will be able to pull this off, you know, yeah. and I, I always want to try to demystify it for people. That's awesome. amazing. That's exactly what this show's about for me because I I just find these conversations so valuable to me. They inspire me and they've inspired me when I was younger to hear interviews with people and uh, that's awesome. Yep. So thank you. Thank you. Take care.